Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. This is St. Louis on the Air from St. Louis Public Radio. I'm Elaine Cha. In 2019, the Chicago suburb of Evanston, Illinois, became the first city in the United States to issue reparations. It took the form of $25,000 payments to some of the town's black residents, people whose ability to buy a home had been restricted by racist zoning laws. It can be difficult to put a figure on the harm caused by generations of slavery, followed by many decades of segregation and the many other forms that discrimination can take. But it's not just Evanston making that effort. It's also right here in St. Louis. Starting in April last year, an official reparations commission has been holding public meetings to examine the city's history and racist laws that kept Black people from living and building wealth in their own neighborhoods. The commission was initially planning to release a final report this spring, laying out its recommendations and feedback from the public. But the commission members say they need more time. And they're getting it. Last week, the city extended the commission's work to September, giving them more time to produce that final report. It will allow, I think, uh, time for the commission to really do some thorough and thoughtful work um, and for the city to be able to support that work. That was Vernon Mitchell, the interim director of St. Louis's Civil Rights Enforcement Agency. He announced the extension last week during a meeting of the Reparations Commission. The extension means there will be some months to go before we hear the commission's full recommendations. In July, before the commission's fourth public meeting, I sat down with two of its members to talk about its goals. With me was historian Gwen Moore of the Missouri Historical Society. I also talked with Kayla Reed, the chair of the St. Louis City Reparations Commission. Kayla is also the co-founder and executive director of Action STL. I started by asking Kayla to describe the commission and why it exists. So this commission was um, created through an executive order by Mayor Jones. Um, It's a nine-member panel where we are tasked with studying the history of race-based harms in St. Louis and creating a set of recommendations for um, the this administration to enact mm-hmm. around um, to address those harms and right those wrongs. And how were the committee members selected? Yeah, so there, the executive order outlines a set of criteria for different members. Um, some have to be youth, some have to be professors or academics, others historians, civil rights leaders. Um, and so there was an application process where members of the community were invited to apply and those who met those criteria were selected. Mm-hmm. Why did each of you apply for the commission? Gwen? Well, I have a deep interest in the subject, and I study uh, the black experience in St. Louis, so I was very much aware of the sort of uh, historic wrongs and harms uh, that were part of the fabric of the city, so I felt that I had something to offer Mm -hmm. in that area. Right. Mm -hmm. And Kayla, for your part? Yeah, so Action St. Louis have been working to get this commission actually enacted since 2019, and so we sent a memo to 
Mayor Jones's administration calling for a commission to be established. So this work had been very personal to me and our organization for many years. And it felt like the right time and the right work to be doing in St. Louis at this moment. Mm-hmm. Now, insofar as the discussion about reparations, you know, a lot of what is being talked about is actions by governments, like mm-hmm. the city of St. Louis are groups that operated closely with governments like real estate groups, which we're going to talk about a little later, that work to make sure black people couldn't buy homes or get loans in certain neighborhoods. So this difference between you know, individuals and governments, how does that affect the discussion of reparations, Kayla? Yeah, so for the commission members, I think we're really interested in hearing both those anecdotal stories, but also looking at the structural reasons why those anecdotal stories even came, stories came to be. Um, so we've heard a lot from residents and institution leaders around uh, the discrimination that has taken place. And actually, at the last meeting, um, Gwen gave a presentation about um, wealth building in St. Louis and how different things like redlining and city plans created the disparities that we see across North City, Central City, and South City. Mm -hmm. And is that something, Gwen, that you took up because of the questions that were coming from the public or and or, you know, were they part of the discussions that were um, happening among you as uh, commission members? Well, I think I think that it it comes from both. Mm -hmm. Uh, And because this is something that I have been looking at for quite some time in the work that I do at the Missouri Historical Society, like Mm -hmm. the research that I've been doing for quite some time on Mill Creek. So I was very much aware that black people were blocked from the opportunity to actually own a home. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all know that the the best way to uh, get financial stability, accrue wealth, pass on that generational wealth is through home ownership. And because this was denied to blacks uh, through a a number of of, uh, laws, policies, practices, not just by the government, but also, as you mentioned, by the real estate agency, Mm -hmm. (laughs) agency, the real estate industry. Uh, So this was something that I was really interested in. And I wanted people to understand why there's this gap uh, this wealth gap mm-hmm. and why black home ownership is so much lower than white on, on, on uh, home ownership. And right. it, it's because it was by design. Right, it right. wasn't by accident or it wasn't had anything to do with some flaw in black people, but right. it was actually government policy and private policies mm-hmm. and practices. So design, um, policies, individuals, Um, Let's talk about reparations and real estate. Let's just jump right into it. In September last year, the St. Louis Realtors Association publicly apologized for its role in redlining and restrictive covenants. These were policies designed to keep black people from owning homes or moving into white neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. The apology noted that the discrimination to which the black community was subjected to was part of a system designed to cause residential racial segregation and that these policies resulted in dual housing markets for white and black families in the metropolitan St. Louis area. Our show spoke with Nate Johnson, the board president of the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council. He said this apology was a big step. That is very significant because, you know, we have a a long history in St. Louis and quite frankly nationwide of realtors um, having discriminatory practices towards people of color. And I think that it's really powerful that our association 
was one of the first associations to get out and say, hey, you know what? We know that we did some things wrong, a lot of things wrong, and we're working to correct this. And part of the way that we have to correct this is by acknowledging that we did things that were wrong. That was Nate Johnson, the board president of the Metropolitan St. Louis Equal Housing and Opportunity Council. And I will add that when he was here talking with us, he said that he had not been aware of the extent to which there had been redlining. And mm -hmm. he's someone who's in the industry and one of, um, one of not that many black folks who were working in realty when he was coming up. It's not something that he learned about. Now this history, Gwen, of housing discrimination in St. Louis was the subject of your presentation mm -hmm. at the Reparations Commission last month. Why is this important to the discussion of reparations? Because it was a way that black people were denied <clears throat> the opportunity to build wealth. And so we've been disadvantaged in a number of ways. And this is just, and when I began my, my presentation, I said this is just one reason why we have this wealth gap. And of course, there are many reasons. But this is so powerful because this is the way the average person can gain some sort of economic security, economic stability, and pass that on down the line. Well, that didn't happen with African Americans, and it preceded redlining mm -hmm. you know, with the real estate industry's um, complicity. Uh, in fact, I would say what they were spearheading. The, the segregation of blacks in the city and actually prevented blacks from moving into certain areas. Mm -hmm. We're talking today with historian Gwen Moore, the curator of urban landscape and community identity at the Missouri Historical Society. She's also a member of the St. Louis City Reparations Commission and with Kayla Reed, who's the chair of the St. Louis City Reparations Commission and also the executive director of Action STL. Kayla, as you're hearing Gwen talk about these policies and some of this, you know, it's in the past, where do we see resonances of this in the future and in what you have seen and experienced in your lifetime? Yeah, I think when we think about even with the data from the last census in 2020 um, on the city's website, it says that, you know, 56 percent of white households are owner occupied compared to just 30 percent of black households are owner occupied. And so we're seeing a great disparity between home ownership even recently. And, and that is because we're not passing homes from generation to generation. We're creating um, a reality where we have generational renters, people who've been renting for the majority of their adulthood, and they are the children of renters. Um, and we didn't, you know, we know with the realities of places like Pruitt Igo and the Peabody's that we actually drove black residents into renting more than we did home ownership. Mm -hmm. And so that material gap has impacted our communities, our schools, our neighborhoods, um, our safety. And so for us, that's a robust conversation to start around reparations. Right. So reparations and wealth. Gwen, you mentioned wealth mm -hmm. earlier. The denial of home ownership and the generations of lost wealth, can reparations make up for that? That's the hope. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't know if you can ever go, you can't go back into the past and, and, and correct what was happening. There has to be redress. That's what it's about, redress. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think history proves that public policy and private practices are responsible for current conditions. Um, I live in North St. Louis, 
and um, we're having some problems, some real challenges there, and it comes directly from those policies and those practices. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it was by design. It didn't happen by accident. Right. I mean, policies and practices, I think so much of the time it feels like it's it's out there, it's big, it doesn't have sort of a place in in everyday conversations outside something like a public meeting. Kayla, in your experience, have have people of your generation, um, have they been talking about this in in ways that maybe uh, have not come to light properly? Yeah, I think we've seen a resurgence in the conversation around reparations, which is why we see cities like Evanston, San Francisco, states even like California picking up this conversation, producing these reports. So it does feel like a uh, a sort of resurgence of work that had been happening for decades. And we're actually really starting to see recommendations that make um, real policy proposals that could create redress, as, as Gwen said. Um, I think as far as, you know, organizations go, we see organizations like Action St. Louis, Arch City Defenders, nationally, the Movement for Black Lives, really taking on the mantle of, of demanding reparations because we understand that the work that we do around racial justice is based on the harms that have happened historically in our region mm-hmm. and in places like St. Louis. And so I think our generation is really wrestling with it. We've seen an intergenerational conversation take place at these meetings, young folks, older folks are coming and and providing testimonies on behalf of their families, but also giving us vision for what's possible with these recommendations that we are to make. Mm-hmm. So insofar as optimism and, and vision is concerned, I mean, is the fact that the St. Louis Realtors Association sort of finally publicly acknowledging those policies and apologizing for them, does that support the case that now is a good time to really look at reparations, Gwen? Well, let me just say something about the real estate industry. I think it's very nice that they apologized uh, over 100 years later, but better late than never. Um, and I guess my question would be, okay, now you have apologized. Now what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, but I think it's a good first step, but it has to go beyond that. An apology is nice, but it's not enough. It right. doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't really, really address those harms. It doesn't really say what you're going to do about those harms. What what happens uh, next? And that's what I'm interested in. What are they going to do next mm-hmm. beyond the apology? Right, right. We're going to take a quick break here, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. Before the break, we were discussing the legacy of racist housing restrictions in St. Louis. Let's talk about those racially restrictive covenants. What were they, Gwen, and what did they mean to do? Well, those racially restrictive covenants, they they started appearing in St. Louis about 1910. Uh, And, of course, they were spearheaded by the real estate industry, the real estate exchange, which was the real estate industry here, uh, and these neighborhood improvement associations. But the real estate exchange had a heavy hand in helping to craft these and giving financial support, as a matter of fact. And what a covenant was was that when a group of people that lived on a certain block, certain blocks, 
would get together and they would sign a pact that they would not sell or lease any land or any property, any houses uh, to uh, what they call Negroes. And they also sometimes included what they called Mongolians, which I always tell people that was their word, not mine. But mostly they were uh, aimed at African-Americans to keep African-Americans out of certain areas. Mm-hmm. And Kayla, before, uh, in the conversation, you know, we were talking about renters and people who are renting generation after generation. Um, Gwen, I realized that recently you learned that your parents had signed a, a covenant and that the the payments they had made, I'm sorry, that they had signed a contract and that the home they were living in that they were paying for was not actually their home. Well, it's often said, well, if black people could not get, they couldn't get uh, these federally insured mortgages. So basically they could not get mortgages from a bank. Now there were, I always say there were some small banks in St. Louis, black owned banks, you know, New Age Federal in 1915, there was uh, People's Finance Corporation 1923 and Employee Loan 1934 or so. But these were very small banks and of course they were <laughs> laboring under the same rules as the big banks were. So it was difficult for black people to get these federally insured mortgages so a lot of times they had to buy on contract. And that was a private agreement between a buyer and a seller. And it was basically like uh, buying a car. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Or even worse than that, buying something on layaway. It was on the installment plan. And you really didn't ever get any equity. Uh, if you missed a payment, that contract could be voided. And then the buy- the seller could start all over again with a fresh buyer. So it was like a type of, of, of a contract that was ripe for abuse. Right, And right. That, that usually happens. So it was very hard for black people to actually get a house and actually get to the place where they could own it. Mm-hmm. In February 2023, a set of public monuments called Pillars of the Valley were unveiled where Mill Creek used to be. And author Vivian Gibson, who also lived there, spoke to our show at the time and talked about how important that kind of memorial is to the future. We have not been erased after all. That was my big fear. When when I was ever talking about Mill Creek, I would hear, I never heard of it. Where was it? And so now there's something permanent there that children for generations to come could ask what was Mill Creek? Where was it? How did it happen? What happened to it? Ask those questions and do the research and uh, read about it and get stories mm-hmm. that are from people who actually lived there. So a memorial like this publicly commemorates the harm done to a very specific black community. Kayla, from your perspective, I mean, is this part of the reparations discussion? Yeah, I think what the pillars of Mill Creek do is is actually sort of allow us to tell the truth out loud. And what it opens up is a conversation about how these decisions around displacement and removal of entire communities came to be. And the city has real responsibility in that with the city plans that actually articulated Mm -hmm. um, what we now call the central corridor. These were intentional removal of black bodies, black homes, black families for the investment that we now see And when we think about the current manifestation of that, the arch to park phenomenon, this sort of central corridor phenomenon is an intentional policy that 
contributed to the displacement of black families in neighborhoods like Mill Creek Valley. And so the the sort of um, monuments are a part of them, but there also has to be other types of redress. Mm-hmm. And the mandate of the Reparations Commission, it's about goal setting, right? So you are meant to propose a method and potential funding resources for directly repairing the harms that have been inflicted. And we're talking now in this conversation mm-hmm. about harms that have to do with where people live, what they own, what they can pass on. Given that, I mean, how would you approach redress for that? Yeah, so from some of the folks who attend the meetings, that could be uh, direct payments. We also have um, examples Currently, there's a really awesome program called Rooted that invests STL, a local organization, created where they disperse $20,000 to 50 residents in the um, West End and Visitation Park neighborhoods mm-hmm. for home repairs and to as down payments on new properties in those communities. I also just want to say, I mentioned Arch, Arch to Park, and they have an equity fund that um, was privately funded at $190 million. Um, for development along the Central Corridor. What does it mean to have a North City equity fund? What does it mean to have resources Mm -hmm. that pour into areas that have been historically neglected? Mm -hmm. Those are recommendations that we're hearing from um, the public that will start to shape the report as we begin to write it. Yeah. And what is difficult, would you say, about this mandate and the way that you are going about things right now? What makes it challenging? One of the biggest challenges I find is the fragmentation of our region. And so we actually have a lot of folks who formerly lived in St. Louis City, places like Mm -hmm. Mill Creek Valley, where they moved into St. Louis County. And so Mm -hmm. what are the um, parameters for folks who were impacted by the policy decisions that no longer live here? There's a lot of questions around um, lineage, right? Who becomes eligible for this conversation and in the context of what is possible locally when the state and the nation both have responsibility to address um, the harms of enslavement. Yeah. So insofar as enslavement goes, you know, to what extent is that a necessary part of the conversation around reparations? Mm -hmm. And is there a point at which um, talking about slavery um, doesn't do enough to sort of cover what happened after? You know, I always say slavery was the beginning, Mm -hmm. but it was not the end. So this is where we start. We start with enslavement, and then what happened after enslavement? You know, I talk about the the fact that black people weren't able to take advantage of uh, the Homestead Act. Black Mm -hmm. people weren't, you know, the the special order number 15, the 40 acres, that black people for one brief shining moment uh, had reparations, but it only lasted for a few months when they were given that land and then thrown off that land. Right. And then, you know, the black codes, the Jim Crow laws, the segregation. St. Louis was a segregated city until 1961 when they passed that public accommodations law. So this is not like in the far, far distant past. Right. And, of course, we can talk about uh, uh, Team 4 with 1973. So these things are like ongoing. Mm-hmm. And we see them now. Mm-hmm. as the way our city looks now. Why are, why is the, the black people sort of clustered in one part of the city with the most neglected part of the city? And right. I can speak from personal experience because I live there and mm-hmm. I know what it looks like and I know the kind of neglect. So this is something that's ongoing. It's not something in the, dis, in the distant past right, that it right. ended with enslavement. 
Now, the San Francisco um, Commission is sort of one example, and its draft plan for reparations has drawn a lot of attention, and Mm -hmm. its recommendation includes cash payments of $5 million to each adult. Now, that's a lot more than Evanston's 25000 What do you make of San Francisco's plan so far? And, I mean, does it does it provide any sort of model that you can see uh, following here? Yeah, what I'll say is, is our is our responsibility as the commission to make the recommendations. Um, it's the administration's responsibility to enact what's possible. Um, we are not going to limit ourselves to the city's budget. We're going to limit ourselves. We're going to contain our recommendations to actually redress some of the issues that we know have happened in our city's past and tell that truth. And so I think San Francisco um, is a really great example of how community came together with bold ideas. Um, And now it's on the city council um, to figure out how to implement these policies and and what other programs are possible. Mm -hmm. And so I know often when we think about reparations, money just becomes the central focus of it. And and I think this commission really thinks that we need to use all tools and tactics that are are at our disposal. Mm -hmm. So in this final uh, minute or so, what is it that gives you hope, or dare I say confidence, that this commission's work will result in concrete reparative measures? The people, the people who attend that meeting every month, the people we'll see tomorrow and have seen for the last four months, give me plenty of hope because I they understand that we are just one step toward actualizing those recommendations. Mm-hmm. And I think people are going to stay engaged beyond the report to make sure that these things get implemented. And Gwen? Yeah, I just want to add, I agree wholeheartedly with, with Kayla, that I've been really impressed uh, with the knowledge, the passion, the the commitment that the public has to this issue, and they're not going to let it die. <laughs> I can, that's that's pretty obvious. Uh, these are people that have a lot of them have been involved in this movement. Some of them haven't, but they realize this importance and they want to be a part of it. And so it's been a real learning experience for me, uh, just to sit there and listen to all the ideas, mm-hmm. and they come up with such creative ideas about mm-hmm. how this should go forward. Yeah and what to expect. That was Gwen Moore of the Missouri Historical Society and Kayla Reed, chair of the St. Louis City Reparations Commission. I spoke with them in July. The commission's final report has been extended to September. Its next public meeting is January 31st. This episode was produced by Danny Wissentowski. Audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. St. Louis on the Air proudly supports local artists by using music from Life Creative. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. And leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. St. Louis Public Radio is a member-supported service of the University of Missouri.
Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.